Ephesians 1, we're going to try to finish up the chapter this morning, chapter 1, before we take a break next week for Christmas. So speaking of Christmas, how's everybody shopping going? How many people not done? Besides me, I mean. How, how many people were done before Thanksgiving? I don't understand you. God bless you, but I don't understand you. It's, it's interesting the different styles that we have for shopping. It's different, the different, it's interesting the different approaches people take, especially for the people who are hard to shop for. Apparently I'm hard to shop for, which my mother dealt with by getting me the same thing every single year. Tan, crew neck, cotton knit sweater. I don't, I don't mean she got me a tan crew neck cotton neck sweater. The same one. The same sweater from the same store year over year. Mike got him a little hot. Um, I, don't know, I don't know if she forgot. I don't know if she thought I wore it so much I wore it out. I don't know if she realized I never wore it because I hated it and she kept buying me new ones just to mess with me, which is what I would do. But I get it. Christmas shopping is hard. It's hard to get someone something different every year. It's hard, and it, it's also hard to get the same thing for, for, for a group of people in a given year, something everyone will like. For, for a while, I worked in a place where part of my job was to get everyone who worked there, probably 50, 60 people, a Christmas gift. And my marching orders one year, get everyone a gift card to a nice restaurant so they can go out and have a relaxing dinner. Just pick someplace everyone will like. Oh, sure, all 50, 60 people and their families. How about we just give people cash? Everyone likes cash. No, that's tacky. We're going to get people gift cards because we want them to have this nice dinner. Just make sure it's someplace that everybody loves. There is no such place. Oh, you'll figure it out. Just, you know, pick a place everybody likes. Sure. Gift giving can be hard. But as we turn back to Ephesians chapter 1 this morning, Paul actually pulls it off. This morning, chapter 1, he's going to talk about the gift that he's decided to give the people he's writing to, all of them. And it turns out that it's perfect for all of them. And perfect for us. Let's dig in. Ephesians 1, we left off last week after Paul's almost 200-word run-on sentence from verse 3 to verse 14. It's a couple sentences in the English. One long sentence in the Greek. A sentence that, that we saw over the last couple weeks contains just a ton of essential biblical doctrine. But having said all of that, having said what he said, verses 3 to 14, verse 15, Paul says, therefore, because all of that is true, therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all of the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. But wait, he's not done. And, verse 22, which connects this thought with the previous thought, and he put all things under his feet, Jesus' feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So that's a lot. But if we break it down, if we uncouple Paul's compound sentences and his subordinate clauses, and if we dissect this, this convoluted sentence structure that sometimes happens when we bring the Greek over to the English, the core idea here is actually pretty straightforward. Paul's saying, hey, when I heard about you, I wanted to bless you. And here's how I decided I was going to do that. Here's the gift I decided I would give you. Therefore, Paul says, verse 15, because of what it is to be a Christian, because of the love that God has bestowed on us, the love that he's lavished on us as Christians, love expressed by election and redemption and the Holy Spirit marking us as God's possession and everything else he just got done celebrating, when I heard, he says to the people he's writing to, that you were recipients of that same love, I started praying. Verse 16. When I heard that you were who you were in Christ, I immediately started praying, and I started praying two things. One, I started thanking God for you, thanking God for his, his love directed to you, and two, I began asking God, verse 17, I began asking God to give you understanding, supernatural understanding of that love. If you're taking notes, here's the first big point. That's why Paul is writing. Because of everything that he just said, verses 3 to 14. Because God is who he is and loves the way that he loves. Now pause here for a moment. Glance back at verse 15. This is one of the Several reasons that people think that the, what we call the letter to the Ephesians was not only written to the church in Ephesus, but also the churches in Sardis and Laodicea and Smyrna and all the churches in the region. The first reason we think that's true, we talked about a few weeks ago, back in verse 1, that phrase in Ephesus that we have in our New King James does not appear in the earliest manuscripts in existence. In, in those manuscripts, in the earliest manuscripts, Paul's salutation reads, to the saints, faithful in Christ Jesus. So that's the first reason that we have to believe this letter was actually written to a broader audience. The second reason, Paul just gave us here in verse 15, he heard they were faithful in Christ Jesus. Now that wouldn't be the case if it were only written to the church in Ephesus, because Paul lived there for like three years. So he knew, he saw with his own eyes that they were faithful. He wouldn't need to hear it. He, he was an eyewitness to it. Now, admittedly, some time had passed, 
But even so, if you, were, if you were only talking to the Ephesians, he would have said something like, I heard that you were still faithful. I heard that you've remained faithful. But he doesn't. He just says, I heard that you were faithful. So it's probably addressed to more than just one church. It's probably intended to be circulated from Ephesus to all the churches in the region, which isn't a major point, but we talked about it, so it's worth following up. But back to, back to what Paul is actually saying. What does it mean to be faithful? A couple things. He, he, he elaborates on this. He says, I've heard you put your faith in Jesus, verse 15. Trusted in his death for your salvation. Believed on him. I've heard that you've put your faith in Jesus. And I've heard that you're proving that faith. Same verse. How? By loving Everyone in the church, loving everyone in any church, loving all believers anywhere. People talk about the, the cross-shaped birthmark that we receive when we're born again. The mark of, of Christ on us. Not visible, obviously. But, but unmistakable nonetheless. What are they talking about? What is that birthmark? Jesus tells us, and Paul reminds us the thing that marks us as genuine Christ followers is love. Jesus says so, John 13, 35, they'll know that we're Christians, how? By our love for one another. John says the same thing. He says it in 1 John 2. He says it in 1 John 3, verse 14, we know we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. 1 John 3.14. Jesus says it. John says it. Here Paul says it. The proof of our faith is love. True love. Authentic, not contrived. Sacrificial love. Love that gives. Love that costs. Love that pays a price. Indiscriminate love. Love that, that doesn't stop when it encounters somebody that's hard to love, but that presses on and loves the people who are difficult to love. Love that loves no matter what. That's the mark of our faith. And part of me really wants to just stop and camp out here for the next half hour because this is such, such an important topic. And it's, and it's so neglected in the body of Christ. We, we can all quote 1 Corinthians 13. Without love, our ministry is worthless. Clanging gong, clashing cymbal. Without love, all we have to offer is just a bunch of noise. We know that we can quote that, but we keep coming, we, the, the, the body of Christ, we keep coming up with ways to try to separate faith and love. I, I don't need church, I just need Jesus in my Bible. Okay, if you're not living in community, though, how, how are you going to love the body of Christ. Well, my ministry is to call out faults and failures in the body. <laughs> Correcting error is important. But if we're always tearing down and never building up, is that really love? I think about the Jonathan Swift line. Jonathan Swift, uh, Anglican pastor, best known for Gulliver's Travels, but really should be better known for, for his satire. Oliver's Travels was satire, but, but, but Jonathan Swift said, we have just enough religion to make us hate and not enough religion to make us love. It's pointing at something real. 
Religion can't produce love, only Jesus can, but Jesus won't unless our faith is real. And I really want to keep talking about this, but Paul keeps going, so we'll keep going. Real faith, Paul says, produces genuine love. And I heard yours is, he says, verse 15. I heard that your faith is genuine because your love is genuine. I heard that you profess faith in Christ and prove that by your love. That's who Paul is writing to. Second point, if you're taking notes. Number one was the why. He just got done talking about the who. He's writing to genuine believers, believers who have proved themselves true through their love. And he says to them, hey, as, as soon as I heard about you, as soon as I heard about your faith and love, verse 16, I knew what my response needed to be. I knew what I wanted to pray most for you. This is going to be the what. This is going to be number three. This is what I wanted most for you. So this is what I started praying for you. Notice, by the way, Paul is practicing what he preaches. As he's talking about faith and love, he's doing what? He's exercising faith because he's believing that God is a prayer-hearing, prayer-answering God. He's exercising faith as he prays, and he's demonstrating love because the prayer that he prays here is of no benefit to him. These people are miles away. Paul's locked in a house. He's praying prayers that don't benefit him. He's gifting He's blessing, he's serving, he's loving others. Because love is always about what? Others. Paul's loving others. He's loving his readers. He's loving the church in Ephesus. He's loving the the churches around Ephesus. How? By asking God to reveal himself to them. This is what he's praying. Give them revelation. Paul pleads in verse 17, impart your knowledge to these precious people. And and, and with that, give them wisdom, an understanding of how to use that knowledge. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of God, which isn't knowledge of what, it's knowledge of who. Knowledge of God who saved them. Knowledge of God who loves them. Knowledge of who he is, his person, his character, his heart, his purpose. I'm understanding this or underlining this a little bit because Paul's underlining it a little bit. That's not true. He's underlining it a lot. He's emphasizing this. He is praying deeply. I've got to believe fasting. I've got to believe on his knees asking, oh God, would, would you allow the churches to see you for who you are, to know you, not just know about you, but truly deeply, intimately know you. Not just your word, not just your attributes, not just their feelings about you or or even their experiences of you, but you. All of that is important, by the way. Word, attributes, experiences, even our feelings of God. We're created to be emotional. All of that is important, but Paul is saying, God, would you go beyond that? Would you transcend that? Would you supernaturally impart an understanding of you? Would you reveal yourself to the the churches in a special way? Would you open the eyes of their understanding? He prays, verse 18. New American Standard translates that, open the eyes of their heart, which is where Paul Balash grabbed the line. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart 
I want to see you. But Paul's prayer here isn't for himself, it's for others. Open the eyes of their heart. Lord, open the eyes of their heart that they would see you, that they would know you. And in particular, that they would see and understand and lay hold of three specific things about you. Verse 18. Open the eyes of their hearts, Lord, that they would understand, one, the hope of your calling, two, the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints, and three, verse 19, the exceeding greatness of your power toward those who believe. Here's point number four. This is how Paul believes the church can come to know God. That's how Paul thinks the church will get to the what he's praying for. And I want to pause again, and, and I apologize, no slides this morning. Life and ministry happened, but, but even without the slides, I really want to make sure that you're, you're, you're laying hold of the structure of the passage. So point one was, was why Paul is writing, because God is God, and he's everything that Paul described in verses 3 to 14. Who he's writing to is believers who... who, who know that God, who have trusted that God for salvation, who have proved the genuineness of their faith through love. And what Paul really wants for them is that they would know God on a whole different level, intimately, deeply, profoundly. And how, point number four, Paul thinks that will happen, is if God reveals four, sorry, three things to the church. And so Paul asks God, God, will you reveal these three things? Hope of your calling, riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints, and the exceeding greatness of your power toward those who believe. Because if the churches understand those three things, that's how they'll know God better. We'll work, we'll work backwards. And that's what Paul wants for them to know better. And that's why he wants them. To, to, they, to, 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 because God is everything that he is and who he wants to know that is the churches. Just, I really want to make sure you're not losing the outline because I didn't write it down. How Paul thinks that the churches will grow in knowledge and wisdom, how he thinks they'll really know God is if God shows them, one, the hope of their calling. Now, we know that in the Bible, hope isn't a maybe, it's a certainty. Something good, something positive, something amazing is going to happen. And here in this context, the positive, amazing, certain thing is that we're going to be united with Christ forever as his bride. We don't think about that nearly enough. As believers, we spend a lot of time thinking about what Jesus saved us from, right? This, this pattern of sin. That, that manifestation of pride, those, those exhibitions of selfishness. Spend a lot of time dwelling on the past. And, and we spend a lot of time agonizing over the present. How we're still wrestling with our flesh. And how we're still drawn to the world. And how we still prove that we're less than completely sanctified every single day. And it's not wrong to be mindful of that stuff. But Paul's prayer is that we would think about more than just that stuff. That we would think about more than that. Verse 18, Paul asks God, God, would you remind your people, your precious saints, that they're more than their past and even more than their present. God, remind them of their future. 
Let them believe and trust and know there's an eternity waiting without sin or pain or sickness or sadness, without separation or loss or disappointment of any kind. There's an eternity waiting with Jesus, all of Jesus and only Jesus and forever Jesus. Oh, God, show them that, Paul says. God, impress upon them the hope of your calling. Make real to them the joy that's waiting. Would you do that, Lord? And would you, here's number two, also show them the riches of the glory of your inheritance and the saints? Now, we read that quickly because it's a bunch of words, and we might think that Paul is asking God to remind the churches, hey, you're joint heirs with Christ. That the creation redeemed by God, the creation that one day will be fully possessed by Christ, will belong equally to them. And when they return with Christ, they'll rule and reign with Christ over that creation, all of which is true and none of which is what Paul is saying. Look again at verse 18. Paul's not talking about our inheritance. He's talking about Christ's inheritance. Aren't they the same thing? Yeah, except for one thing. What is uniquely Christ's inheritance? Us. We are his inheritance. I heard a pastor say something interesting this week. He said, the problem that a lot of us have is that we think that we're going to sneak into heaven through the back door. Like a lot of us used to sneak into movies or concerts. Find a door in the alley propped open, maybe get a friend to prop the alley door open. If anybody asks, I'm with the band. <laughs> Except that's not how we're going to enter heaven. That's not how any of us are going to arrive. That's not our destiny. If we've believed in Christ and trusted him for our salvation, we're going to walk straight in through the front door and up the center aisle, dressed in white and adorned with jewels, with all eyes upon us as the bride of Christ, looking at us like every bridegroom looks at every bride, perfect in his eyes. Oh God, let them see that, Paul prays. Help your people know their true worth. Explain it to them, God. Explain it to their hearts. Speak to their hearts. Help them know how precious you are to them. And help them know, here's number three, help them know the power they have in you. The power that Paul takes the next five verses to describe. Verse 19 all the way to 23. The power which he needs four synonyms to just to, to, to try to express. Just in verse 19, he talks about power. The Greek is dunamis, from which we get dynamo and dynamite. Working, and, 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 and that gives us energy and energize. NASB translates this with nouns, and it works a little bit better. The, where where it, in the New King James it says mighty in power. Power is a different word, and the NSB gets that, and it, and it says the strength of his might. Strength, dominance, domination, domineering, and might, ability, gifting. Paul, Paul, Paul is wringing every drop of juice out of the English language, well, out of the human language, out of, out of, out of the Greek, <laughs> to try to convey not just the extraordinary power of God, but the enormity of the power he's placed in us. Paul's pleading, God, will you help your people appreciate and understand and lay hold of the supernatural strength that's living in them right now? 
And, and, and this resonates even more deeply when you remember the context in which Paul's writing. The context in which Paul's readers are living. They're surrounded by idol worshipers of every kind. Ephesus, the, the world capital of Diana worship. The Ephesians worshipped Diana. Others in the region worshipped different gods. And some were looking to the stars for answers, and some were practicing witchcraft, and some actually believed Caesar when he said that he was a god. In, in Paul's day, just like in our day, people were looking everywhere, and they were trying everything, and they were asking everyone, do you have the power I'm looking for? Can you help me make sense of this life? Can, can you show me the, the, the secret to living this life? Do, do, do you have it? Do you know where I can get it? Can you tell me where to, where to start looking, where I can find it? Oh God, Paul prays, will you show them? Will you show, will you show all of them? Everyone who calls upon your name. Everyone who proves their faith by love, will you show them the power they're looking for is already within them? Warren Wearsby tells the story of William Randolph Hearst. Hearst was wealthy businessman, newspaper publisher at the turn of the last century. Now that Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post, maybe that's a, a, a decent comparison. Hearst was a, was, a, was a fanatical art collector, rabid art collector. He, and, he, and, and he read about a particular piece by a particular artist, and he got obsessed. He said, I must have this. Calls up his art dealer, find it, talk to every gallery, make any offer, pay any price, just get it. After months of research and investigation and negotiation, the dealer reports back to Hearst. Yeah, the thing is, you already own it. <laughs> it was crated up and, and, and stored in a warehouse. Oh God, Paul is praying, don't let that be your people. Don't let them have something and not, and not realize it. Don't let them possess something and not own it. God, help them understand they already have the strength they need. The power that defeated Satan, the power that overcame death, the power that elevated a man, a human being, to your right hand is theirs right now. God, would you show them, verse 20, the power that raises Jesus from the dead dwells in them, and the privilege and stature and access and authority that belongs to him, verse 21. The standing greater than any earthly ruler, greater than, higher than any angelic power, will likewise one day belong to them. They know they're saved, God. But God, would you reveal to them the same power that put sin and death behind them, the same power that defeated Satan for them, has come to dwell in them, is now available to them. Oh God, would you help them see that? Let them know the power of Jesus has been given to them, even as they, verse 23, even as they've been given to him. And allow them to know, verse 23, show them, Father, that they would know that you've placed your power in them to fulfill all of your plans and purposes for them. Show them, Father, that you've placed your power in your people to love us. You've made your power available so that you can guide and direct us. You've placed your power in us so that you can use us to bless one another as the body of Christ. Question. 
What happens when God answers this prayer? Why is Paul praying? Because God is God. Who is he praying for? People who've put their faith in God. What is he praying? That they would know God more deeply. How is he praying that would happen? Through the revelation of hope, inheritance, and power. Okay, then what? Then the people that he's praying for will know God, not just as creator or redeemer, but as a person, as a father, as a brother, as a lover, as a friend. Someone that they can actually talk to and hear from and depend on. And the relationship will become one that they can rest in. The thing about knowing God, the more that we know him is the more that we know who we are in him and what we mean to him. We touched on this already, but let's circle back and look again. Verse 18 and following. Hope has been given. Inheritance. Power. Why these three things? Why does Paul pick these specifically to pray for? Because together, they give us our identity. The hope of his calling speaks to who will be in the future. Whatever, whatever, whatever happens, whatever path we take, whatever life brings, our future is settled. It is in no way uncertain. It is already determined, and it's altogether glorious. Amen? This time of year, I can't help thinking about my dad. My dad was born the day after Christmas. His dad left the day before Christmas, and so that was always a time for our family. And my dad followed in his dad's footsteps. A lot of my relationship with my dad was about broken promises. He didn't leave as quickly physically, but, but a lot of my memories of my dad are the games that we didn't go to and the trips that we didn't take and the projects that didn't happen, you know, the, the promises that, that were broken and the love that wasn't real. In praying that God's people would know the hope of his calling, Paul is praying that people would understand God's a different kind of father. God's a father who keeps his promises. And he set us on a voyage through this world that, yeah, it might travel through calm water or stormy water. But it will end up with us arriving safely home. And along the way, we might choose to, to spend time working down in the engine room, sleeping in our cabin, playing shuffleboard up on the deck. But whatever we do or don't do, our destination is settled, it's certain, it's promised, and it is so much more than good. The hope of his calling speaks to our future. The riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints speaks to our past. And in how, how in God's eyes, our past doesn't exist. Our sin, at least, does not exist. It's erased. It's blotted out. It's forgotten. Which leaves us defined by not anything that we did, not even anything that we do, but everything that Jesus did. Our identity is defined entirely by what Jesus has done. David Platt came up with a powerful way to illustrate this point. Speaking to a group of young people at a conference that was a purity, holiness kind of a thing, took a rose that was, that was just perfect. 
beautiful soft colors, you know, that pedal's just opening. Handed it to somebody in the front row of this huge auditorium and he said he passed it around. And they did. And even though they were careful, it got a little beat up in the process. The pedals got bruised, a bunch of them fell off. By the time it came around, the pedals that were still there were barely hanging on and curled and dirty and you know, oily from, from hands. Stem was, was bent over in one place, almost broken in another. The leaves were completely shredded. When he got it back, Pastor Dave asked, so who wants this flower now? And a room full of people at a purity conference are thinking that he's going to say, that's what happens when, when you let yourself be used and abused by the world. But he, he surprised them. He answered his own question. He said, who wants this flower now? Jesus. Jesus who rescues and redeems and restores and sees us as special and perfect and prized because we are. Whoever we've been and whatever we've done, that's who we are because Jesus. So hope is future with Jesus. Inheritance is our past redeemed by Jesus. Power, that's our present strength in Jesus. Power that's perfect and, and entirely sufficient. The, the power that we have is the power that we need, and we don't need to look anywhere else. Christmas, whatever it else is, is a time of stress for, for most of us. And the fact that it's a time of stress also means that it's a time of seeking relief from stress. And some will seek that relief in the form of their favorite sin which won't actually fix anything. It'll just make us forget for a while and then come back and things are as bad as they were or worse. But, but some will do that anyway. Some will pursue relief from stress and things that aren't sin, but that also aren't Jesus. This, this time of year, I watch people get almost frantic. I need a book. I need a video. Send me a link. I got to talk to a counselor. I got to find a pastor. I need a new church. I need someone or something to solve my problem, to supply what's lacking in my walk, to provide what's missing in my life. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Books, counselors, pastors, churches can be helpful, are helpful, but no book or counselor or pastor or church, including this one, can give any of us what we need. Good news is that if we're Christians, we already have what we need. Because the power that raised Jesus from the dead already, currently, presently, right now, here today, lives in us. There are resources out there. There, there are resources in here. There are resources in this room. People in this room who can remind you that that's true. Maybe, maybe even help you understand why you keep forgetting that it's true, why you stop believing that it's true, why you're not acting like it's true. What they can't do is make it any more true than it is right now. No one can give anyone the strength to navigate this life, but if we're in Christ, we already have it. No one can give anyone the secret to living for Christ because there isn't one. 2 Peter 1.3, God gave us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And, 
And Paul's prayer is that we would know that. That we know all of that. The hope we've been given, the inheritance that we are, the power that we have. Because if we know those things, the security that we have through Christ and the worth that we have to Christ and the sufficiency, the, the, the strength we have from Christ, we'll be able to rest in Christ. What happens when God answers this prayer? We find rest. We learn to abide. And that's when things get really good. Because if we're resting in Christ, we sang earlier, sleep in heavenly peace. If we find that peace, then all our bandwidth is freed up. Everything that we've worried about, cared about, fretted over, all of that bandwidth is freed up for one thing, living for Christ. Think about it. If our future is entirely certain, our past is completely forgotten, and we're 100% confident in God's present provision, what is there to worry about? Answer, nothing. What is there to focus on? Answer, one thing. Love. By the time we get to the chapter, Paul's come full circle. He starts off, God, they know you, and the way that I know that they know you is that they love. So God, I pray that they would know you even more so that they would love even more. That's what Paul is saying. That's what he's praying. God, show them who you are so that they would know who they are in you and understand they're covered you have provided, will provide, are providing everything. So they can trust in your love, rest in your love, abide. And, 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 and if they know, and know that they know, and know that they know that they know, that they have in you right now all the love that they will need, all their time and energy and passion and attention is freed up to love you back. Love people in your name because they'll understand, God, you freed them from every care. Freed them up to focus on telling people about Jesus, blessing people as the hands and feet of Jesus. Free them up to just be out there loving people like Jesus. Becky and Essie, why don't you guys come back up? I, I don't know if it was Christmas when Paul wrote this. Probably not. But it was Paul's gift to the churches in and around Ephesus. The gift of prayer brought before a prayer-hearing, prayer-answering God. A gift that was, was, was just the right size. A gift that was perfect for everyone. That was Paul's, Paul's gift to the churches in and around Ephesus. It's my gift to this church this Christmas, and I hope it'll be yours to me. A sincere prayer, humbly offered to a mighty God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to us here at Calvary the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of our understanding being enlightened, eyes of our hearts opened, 
that we might know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. All that we might rest in him, abide in him, and from that place of security and sufficiency, devote ourselves fully, God, to loving you and loving people in your name. 